Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, a Tony Award-winning show put on by the East Hampton Theatre Company. We'll talk with the crew of Torch Song, which opens its sold-out run this weekend. And we'll look into a market that's making over 20 stops each week to bring healthy local produce to folks of Western Mass. Manager Riley Gilroy and Assistant Manager Monica Hernandez talk about the push to make... The Go Fresh Mobile Market, a year-round endeavor for all those needing more fresh food. But first... I'll give you a little Barry White. You, you've got to rest. Yeah. Everybody's got to rest. Mm. I kind of like that, you know, vocal fry. Yeah. But see, pop fry gets on my nerves. Though. Oh, right? I appreciate Cookie Monsters and, like, how difficult it is to do them. Do you no. mean, like, heavy metal also, Cookie Monsters? Yeah. I love and, this is what happens whenever I come into the room with you two. <laughs> Last time we were completely off the rails. Did we even talk about what we were supposed we to freaking talk about? We did. We got to there. For now, as you begin, you remember nothing. This Sunday, January 28th, 7 o'clock p.m., classical, any p.m., will air the premiere broadcast of John Aylward's one-act opera, Oblivion. The two-hour program will feature the entire opera and selections from Angelus, another work by Aylward. Composer and pianist John Aylward grew up in the Sonoran Desert on the border of Arizona and Mexico, a child of an immigrant mother from Germany, herself a World War II refugee, and in circumstances of both tremendous diversity and economic instability. His music processes the impacts of that earlier life, filled with a deep sense of community, rich expressions of converging cultural histories, and the otherworldly landscapes of the desert. He is currently an assistant professor of visual and performing arts at Clark University. Kaylin Marcel Manson is featured in the opera Oblivion. He's a baritone. He's a conductor, a Springfield resident, a guest of this show previously. He's toured as a soloist, is a master teacher at major concert venues throughout the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Kaylin Marcel Manson, currently associate professor of practice in music and director of music performance at Clark University alongside John Aylward there. He's the music director of the Keen Chorale, the music director of the Barn Opera, and now Opera Vermont, the choral conductor at Walnut Hill School for the Arts, artistic consultant for Mid-American Productions and Mid-Am International, and artistic director and chief executive officer of the orchestra that's going to burn it all down, <laughs> Nero, the New England Repertory Orchestra. John Aylward, Kaylin Marcel Manson, thank you both for joining us. This is an exciting premiere event for Classical NEPM this Sunday. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. This has just been released on CD, mm -hmm. the opera. How was it recording it as opposed to premiering it at Bombix? And it was recorded at Bombix yeah, we as well. Yeah, recorded it at Bombix, yeah. Is this CD just the the performance from Bombix that you did there? Yeah. Just yes. a recording there? It's yeah. the recording we did at Bombix. Yeah, which it was sounds fantastic. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was really, really well, Bombix is a great place to obviously perform, great place to record. Mm -hmm. We love working with Cassandra. And I wanted to do something local. You know, when I when I moved out here, I moved out here in 2019. Uh, I was living in Cambridge, longtime Cambridge resident. And I moved out here and I thought, you know, the whole point of moving out here is to n then never go anywhere. I, yeah. I, I love, I don't <laughs> want to, so I don't want to go anywhere else. I want everyone to come don't to me. Don't tell the listeners yeah. to our show I, that because okay. we're trying to get them to go out <laughs> oh. and do things. Well, you can go to Florence. Well, go to, no, no, no. Go to Florence, go to East Hampton, go to, you <laughs> know. Go, Pioneer I Valley. Mean, yeah, Pioneer Valley. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Brattleboro is as far as I, as I get, you know. <laughs> I got into this phase of life where I just was like, you know, nesting. I just love being out here. And I was traveling way too much for work anyway. So this project came along and I thought, this is great. We're going to do this project here. 
everything else is kind of fell into place. Absolutely. I mean, Kalen, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. you came on board early on in the project. I mean, we were doing readings of this well, opera. Well, it's, so here's what's really interesting, though. Workshops like, Which is so funny yeah. because actually, so John was the head of the music program at Clark that brought me in to right. the Clark faculty. And now it's kind of, we've reversed a little bit. <laughs> but but I, it was actually. Very, very thankfully. What was pretty amazing was it actually was my first semester it was 2019. Yep. You were moving. I had just settled. I was living half and half in the Pioneer Valley because I had just left the Putney School to go to Clark. Right. So I was moving and settling into my house in Springfield at the same time. Yeah. And it was that first semester, and we were workshopping this right. piece that we didn't even know what it was so, going to be It yet. was so different. So there were all these different things, and then, of course, the pandemic hit. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like... And I completely revised the opera in the oh pandemic. Oh, my God. I feel like the pandemic forced a reckoning artistically upon me, and the mm. opera totally changed. And it it, I think it became a little darker. Well, let's, and, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about it. And we're yeah. speaking with the creator of the opera, John Aylward, who's from Northampton now and doesn't want to leave, uh, except it's going to Italy at the end of the week. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> look, 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 look. I mean, come on. Italy, five months in Italy. Go. Who's going to say no? And Kaylin Marcel Manson, who's featured in the opera as the hunter. This has been described by you, John, as... As Dante yeah. meets David Lynch, where like I'm in, cool, 100, and also kind of guy walks into a bar. So can yeah. you tell us what your like <laughs> elevator speech is about what the opera Oblivion is well, all about? Well, yeah, elevator pitch. I'm really bad at that. Do you want to take a stab at it first, Galen? I can give a, a performer's perspective as well as someone who was sort of a part of the creative process all the way through. And what I see as sort of the crux of this opera really is is this sense of you know you have the two wanderers, you have these two archetypes that mm. they meet, these two figures that they meet. And there's this sense of identity, of history, of existential, like what does love mean? What does faith mean? What does justice mean? All of these different things, these ideas get played out in the relationships that get created immediately between these four figures. The guy walks into the bar thing is kind of like the wanderer walks into the bar, but there are the two archetypes. Yeah, and you have the hunter there. and then this bound man in the back. And the whole idea of Dante is really just an exploration of these liminal spaces in our lives. Mm -hmm. So purgatory is this great metaphor for these just liminal these liminal spaces that we inhabit all the time, you know? moral gray zones. Mm -hmm. And so these two wanderers, they find out that they've passed. There's no real spoiler there. I think you kind of get that from the beginning. It's such a <laughs> strange and ethereal place. Mm -hmm. And I think you're absolutely right, Kaelin. The It's the ways then in which they interact with these fantastical archetypes that teases out these interests of mine about memory, identity, love, and their lives, like how do they make sense of their lives? And this is basically the pandemic rewrite. I'm stuck in a kind of holding pattern. I'm rinsing my milk cartons now, and <laughs> I, I don't know, is this my new life? Is this, have I, have I transitioned into something new, or am I in this liminal space, and am I going back to something I remember? To be in that space and to rewrite, I mean, I always wanted the opera to be about something mythological. I was very interested in the, the, the mythologies around Demetrius, around some of these other kind of Greek-Roman archetypes, mythological archetypes that I wanted to explore, putting them into human form that feel more relatable, but then have a tether into mythological sensibilities. During that pandemic rewrite, the idea of just putting them in a space like Dante's Purgatory, it was just great scaffolding. But then wanting to put it in a quote unquote Western or American or um, modern space. And, you know, I grew up in a cafe 
I find the diner to be incredibly relatable. That's the Lynch. Oh, yeah. absolutely. But, but it's I mean, also, you, the, the diner scenes well, we talk and about Twin Peaks. Thing, and, but, you yeah. know, Twin Peaks is so funny because you know? we're feeling that. But, yeah. but it's also this space that is a passing through space. You exactly. Know, it, whether one appreciates the fact that everyone in a diner leaves a little bit of their own residue behind. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But there is that I feeling know. about it. It's like, oh, wow, they're, I, I'm sitting here and I'm waiting for the greasy <laughs> spoon. And I know there have been thousands of people that have sat in this space because I kind of feel them. And it's a weird sensibility, yeah. but there's something we all relate to in, in that in and, that and the And the director, Lane Retmer, fabulous director, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, she had this great idea to get these extras in the diner. In the film we shot, they feel so ghostly. So actually, I should mention that this album, Oblivion, we, by John Aylward, which will debut <laughs> premiere broadcast this Sunday on Classical NEPM. But later this year also comes out as a film. Exactly. So the film, we, we made the recording at Bombix. And then I used that recording as the foundation, totally remixed it for as a filmic version that then all of the, the cast then came back to shoot the film with a fabulous film crew uh, headed by Graham Swan, producer, indie film producer Graham Swan from Ravens Arad Productions. Just won a Cassavetes Award uh, at the Independent Spirit Film Awards, and the film will come out in a couple months. What I really appreciated about this process is how even up to, this is what was really beautiful about it, even up to the filming, we were deciding how we wanted it to be, yeah. how, 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 how it would change. And we were thinking about what had happened to the pandemic, about the fact that, you know, I mean, and it was it was it was a tense conversation, but it was so yeah. good, like about the fact that, you know, I was possibly only a sensible person of color in the film. Um, <laughs> and how in the score, in the original part of the score, the wanderer actually kills the hunter. But it was a decision that we all came to that yeah. actually maybe the hunter chooses to leave. Yeah. So that there is this tension and that there's this moments of recognition, not really a spoiler because it's beautiful, haunting no matter how Oh, believe me, it. there's no way to spoil this, this thing. thing. It's so <laughs> but, weird. But, but the ending is so cool, though. So don't spoil it. <laughs> right, 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 right. But, but, right. but that there was just, the, and that we were literally talking about this. I mean, we yeah. were talking about this. During the filming. During the filming. To that point, I immediately under noticed that you were the only person of color in the cast and your role as the hunter and the way that the hunter plays out across the script really struck me. And I'm not sure if that's just because I am another person of color familiar with, with generally operatic forms, but I was curious about the optics of that. Like, if if it was intentional, I don't want to use the term magical Negro, <laughs> but there is an element of that to the hunter's character that comes off of the the score. Before I'd gotten to the end of the opera, I fully expected your character to die. Mm. Um, and the fact that the hunter doesn't, it, but is, is shunned, despite basically being completely upfront with all of the other characters about what is actually happening, was not lost on me. And so I wonder if that element had always been there because you were a part of the, the creative process. process. It's interesting. I, I mean, I could say from from my perspective, it's so funny, like, going into, like, some of the things we've talked about, like, the name of Nero and all that stuff. But I thought it's was black really, and Italian. Yeah, right? All that stuff. But what was interesting is that when we would talk about these things, we talked about, like, when we had the first reading, we were talking about, like, because it was, it was, like, Ikana and the Duke and mm. all these different mytho- mythological figures that 
ended up being fused into mm. what you know the characters or the or the personages that we we see in the final form of the opera. But what I thought was really really telling and actually really compelling about what we were doing is that we chose to turn into that. We could have chosen yeah. to shy away from that and mm-hmm. be like, oh, well, let's leave this more maybe nebulous, whatever. But actually, in the way that it's depicted in the film, and actually, and this is, you know, not to, because I really appreciate him as a colleague, but what I love about the way John writes for The Voice is that he finds a way, and this is hard for contemporary operatic writers, I mean this, because all the great opera, operatic composers were writing for particular people. So the problem that one has when doing Mozart or Verdi is that you have to try to find a way of being yourself while always putting yourself in clothes that don't necessarily fit you. Right. I don't sing in Italian or whatever. <laughs> Who sits on a three-second trill while they're talking about death? No one, but you kind of find a way to make that believable. What John does in his writing is he it's very, very lyrical. It's very honest. And he was writing for the people he had. Yeah. And yet there is something so natural about how the electronics work with the voice, how the instruments work with the vocal lines, that it really could feel natural for any baritone, maybe, to sing the role of the hunter or to sing the role of the first wanderer. It's it's very natural feeling singing. Later in the show, more theater and slightly less singing with the folks from East Hampton Theater Company and their production of Hyrevy Firestein's Torch Song. And we'll talk with a mobile market on the go in Hamden County. But coming up, how easy is it to write and perform opera in English? More with baritone Kaylin Marcel Manson and librettist John Aylward, whose opera, in English, Oblivion, will make its broadcast debut on Classical NEPM this Sunday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Is it what is it? Is it what is it there? What what's there? What's there? The fountain. I'm really interested in writing for voice in a supernatural, supernatural way so that it feels very close to speaking. Mm-hmm. I want you to really be able to understand the voices. You have no idea what you've done. That's a big difference from the history of opera, where there were so many considerations around acoustics, nothing was amplified. You had to have these vocal techniques in order to sing to the back of the hall. You had to sing in these particular places where you could generate that kind of acoustic. Now we're living in a time when we don't need to do that anymore. We can have extremely intimate operatic settings. We don't need to sing like that anymore. So we can sing in these much more voice-like vocal colloquial styles, and it'll still feel like opera. So there's a sense of bringing people closer into you. You don't have to sing with such volume. You can sing in a more intimate way. And I think that's that kind of more colloquial vocal slash speaking style that lets the voice feel more accessible. And there are big operatic moments too. Well, yes. well like, yeah. like yeah. I mean, which, which I enjoy. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I'd rather like, I was yeah. like, ooh, yeah. look at that E flat. I think I'll, yeah. I think I'll indulge. No doubt. I mean, I want it to be an opera. Yeah, so yeah, to- you're totally right. And we're speaking with 
baritone, Kalen Marcel Manson, who plays the hunter in Oblivion, yes. which will make its premiere broadcast this Sunday on Classical NEPM starting at 7 p.m. It was written by John Aylward, who also joins us, recorded at Bombix in Florence. Do you feel like there's an inherent intimacy and colloquialism in doing the opera in English? Not that it's not your primary language. I'm, assu- I'm making assumptions that English is your first language, um, even though your mom is German. Maybe bilingual household? Yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, absolutely. Great. Yeah. As opposed to singing in German, which I find relatively easy because singing in German is relatively easy as opposed to like French or Italian. For (laughs) me, I'm bad at it. Is there some sort of like intimacy and colloquialism that just comes from doing it in English? Absolutely. You know, I find setting uh, the English language to be very, very difficult because I do think there's a lot of ugly words in English. (laughs) And come from the Germanic. (laughs) Well, there you go. So there you have it. Somehow still easier to say. Yeah. Even after I wrote the libretto, as I was setting it, I was constantly editing uh, the unnecessary out, just trying to only set the absolute necessary so that the libretto doesn't feel bogged down in anything too verbose. Just trying to focus on small, simple, beautiful language, which I think you can achieve in English. As long as you're working economically and sensitively, I think you can set the English language really beautifully. Uh, You have to hear it first and say, oh, wow, I really don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) And then you can go back and make a revision. And as we were saying, you know, we did, we did work through a lot of workshops, a lot of text, a lot of text is on the cutting room floor here. Absolutely. And I think there's another thing that kind of goes to what you were saying too, about like cultural perceptions, right? There's something about the, the operatic idiom, especially for American Anglophones, that when you do sing in a foreign language, it allows that kind of psychic distance Hmm. for the voice, because since it's foreign, then for the voice to sound unnatural seems okay. One of the things that's most challenging as someone who teaches diction all the time is finding a way for, particularly for classical singers, to sing in English uh, in a way that doesn't sound put on. And with such, I would say, such natural easy-feeling colloquial writing where the text has been, like you said, cut down so it's really what essentially needs to be said, there is work that I, I feel we as vocalists had to do to be like, okay, oh, stop stop getting up around it, Caitlin. You know, like Yeah, actually, we were always talking about like, can we, with all the vocalists, yeah. uh, the instructions were always like, even at the end, even in the final recording, I remember Stratis, the conductor, and I, I was in the booth. I was always like, can we try that again with less vibrato? Can we try that again with even less vibrato? <laughs> and, and just trying to get like incisive diction. But nevertheless, the producer, Graham, uh, I was just talking to him yesterday. Nevertheless, he still says, no, we should really make sure we subtitle this, this film. Yeah. There is this feeling that it's, since it's sung and in this operatic way, we need the subtitles. Well, I think, but the thing we are talking about the diction part is yeah. that it's, 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 and that's what's hard too. Yeah. Is because if the diction is too erudite, <laughs> then it doesn't sound natural. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, so there's exactly. those moments where we literally were like, I remember we were talking about it again and in between, in between recording takes, I was like, oh, it was, and it wasn't just, let's do that again. Sometimes it was us as the things like, can we try that again? Yeah, totally. I, I want to, 
I was a little too proper. <laughs> like, totally. You know, like, totally. Like you're a bartender. You know, you know? I'm just I like, mean, I'm you know? like oh, wait a minute, can I try that again, please? Yeah. Let me, let, yeah. mm. And then we're working with the audio to film it, and it's a totally different experience to be in the room, and, but you can't take the audio back. No, you can't. And there was no way we were going to be able to record. It wasn't like we uh, were filming a staged version. We were yeah. filming okay. people running around a bar in all these costumes. There's no way to, and you know, where would the ensemble sit. Right. So there was no way to record it while we shot it. So everyone had to sing along. Especially the like film. the music video version of it, the opera, it, it, which is wicked yeah. cool. Yeah. I can't, I, so I, was I like, can't Especially when you sit there and they'll go like, I think we need more fog. Okay. <laughs> I know. Oh, it was literally people drowning in fog. Fog machine and action. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. It was yeah. just like, mm-hmm. yes. This is a small ensemble for both the orchestral part of it yeah. and the vocal part of it. But then there's electronics yeah. as kind of a bridge between the two. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about bringing electronics into operatic medium and why it was important? to keep it in this production? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love working with electronics. Um, I probably don't do it enough. So much of my work is acoustic. But I felt like for this opera, I wanted to keep the forces small. I really liked the idea of a low-string trio, viola, cello, and bass. That felt like, you know, purgatory slash hell. Some dark strings, very low. and, And I love the electric guitar. And I wanted to use the electric guitar as a kind of almost like a kind of Baroque accompaniment to the voices. And I think that comes out in the score. You kind of hear a lot of when the, when the voices move into a kind of recitative, you hear the solo electric guitar kind of as if it were a Baroque version of... of the lute. Uh, or... Yeah, like a lute, exactly, in this kind of mythological sense. And so then once I had the electric guitar, I thought, you know, I need to actually embed it in, in some... I need to give that some context. And I can't have three strings and one electronic instrument. Well, I could have, but I thought it would be more fulsome and more contextual to have the electric guitar with electronics. So the electronics kind of come out of the electric guitar part, and they're part of that world. And so then the ensemble has a acoustic aspect to it in the three low strings and an electronic aspect in the electronics and electric guitar. And the electronics really allow me to play with ambient sounds, long stretches of ethereal sounds and and soundscapes, which I think really help to contextualize and situate a lot of the action so that the strings don't have to be playing. I mean, three strings playing an hour of music would be really, really hard. (laughs) Giving them some time, keeping their sounds fresh, leaving them for specific things, and then having the electronics take over in a lot of the quieter and longer and more kind of indulgent sonic spaces. It just helped craft the contrasts there. But it was really a joy to work with that's the other thing that I thought was really very so cool about electronics too is that they can be ambient, they can be instrumental, and they can also be very vocal. Kaylin Marcel Manson, who is the baritone for the new opera that will make its premier broadcast debut on Classical NEPM this Sunday night at 7, written by John Aylward from Northampton, both of whom have joined us. It's incredible. The story is amazing. Again, it's got that eerie, creepy, David Lynchy type thing, and the movie comes out later this year. It'll also be followed up uh, by Angelus, which is not Angelus from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, much your chagrin. Much to my chagrin, but I'm sure it's great, too. Yeah, I'm very happy that listeners can have a chance to listen to Parts of Angelus too. That's a really important work of mine that's about my mother's journey as an immigrant. She was a refugee in World War II. She was born in 41 and immigrated in 53. 
to the States, and it's about her time in Germany after the war. Uh, such a pleasure to be able to share the music and to be here with Kaylin. You know, yes, thank you, Kaylin. To you. Yeah, and thank you both. Thank you both. The collection of John Aylward's work, including not just his opera Oblivion, but sections of his operatic poem Angelus and a few other shorter works, has its radio premiere this Sunday evening on Classical NEPM. Later in the show, we'll talk to some folks behind East Hampton Theatre Company's production of the iconic queer theater piece, Harvey Firestein's Torch Song. Up next, bringing the veggies to the people with Hamden County's Go Fresh Mobile Market. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We drive around plant the vehicle in certain neighborhoods a few minutes before we get up, and they're like, they're out and about. Where are they? Where are they going next? <laughs> and we've had people follow us. We've yeah. had people pull us at the Pride gas station when we're trying to get a Ask coffee. What we're about. Hey, are you open? It's another Local Hero Spotlight with Phil Corman from CISA, the Local Hero folks, and we're uh, hop, skipping a jump away from the NEPM studios at Linden Towers in Springfield with the Go Fresh Mobile Market. What's your name? My name is Riley Gilrod, director. And what's your name? Monica Hernandez. Tell us about what Go Fresh Mobile Market is and why we're here. At, this, is this a mostly elderly? Yeah, it's a mixed community? community, mostly elderly. Farmer's market brought to the folks uh-huh. here in the area so they don't have to go out and about. Mostly local food. We take all forms of payment, cash, credit, debit, EBT. We also participate in the Healthy Initiative Program, known as HIP. And that's where a lot of our customers come from. Is they're coming to take advantage of their free HIP dollars. If they don't have to go to the grocery store and spend all their extra EBT, then they can take advantage of the free incentive that they have on their EBT card. Right. It's a state program that reimburses your EBT card, your food stamps, if you go to certain markets that are incentivizing you to eat healthy, like farmer's markets, certain co-ops, etc. What are you doing here, Monica? So basically, I assist Riley in, you know, setting up and transporting the, the produce. I do speak Spanish, so I do help translate. Um, Riley does speak Spanish as well. It's gotten better over the years, so that helps communicate with the community, which is a higher Spanish population. We talk a lot about recipes. We're both chefs. How many stops did you start with, and how did you get involved with making a mobile market in Springfield? Monica had been working in 2018 with the Go Fresh Mobile Market when it was part of the Public Health Institute and the YMCA. I came on in 2019. They had kind of struggled with keeping the same person in a management role because it only really existed for about four months and had about nine stops. And then they were done for the rest of the season. So it was really just the pristine summer months. Then Monica and I got to talking as we paired up and said, we'd really like to see this go year-round. So we started talking to more people in the community, finding out what areas would like to have us come and set up and be willing to accommodate us in the summer, potentially in the winter. From there, it just grew. Uh, we are now year-round with 20 different locations. Yeah, I saw your schedule. It's nuts. Yeah. Even with three day, only three days of stopping. So it's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Yes. Mm-hmm. But you make a lot of stops on each of those days. Yeah, average is four different stops a day. Wednesday being our busier day with five. We, we do get around town. We're all over the area. So you mentioned sort of the genesis of the Go Fresh mobile market from the Public Health Institute. And you were working, uh, Monica, around that time. Tell us what you know about the origins of this as a concept. Yeah, we, we partnered up with UMass. They would come out and do demos. They would use our produce to do that. It allowed a little bit of interaction with more of the customers. It brought in different crowds. Samples are always a great way to like spark interest. Our whole concept is kind of food as medicine, providing a convenient service to the community. The focus started originally with the senior community, um, and we've learned that the senior community do get other resources 
as a single mother myself, I'm like, listen, we need the single mothers. We need the families. We need the ones that have like the five, six kids. And those are the ones that are going to benefit the most from the HIT program because those are the people that are going to get the $60 benefits, the $80 benefits. Those are the people that are going to need and use this. Most of the seniors are just cooking for themselves. So $40 goes a long way. And then they're only going to buy like one or two oranges, one potato. And it's like, that's great because that's all you need. You don't want to go to waste. But essentially, we want to feed the community. We're looking and we try to research where we might find that. So you don't need to live here at Linden Towers to come to this market? That's one of our... um, guidelines is that anybody from the community can go to any of our locations. It was initially started through Elder Affairs. Elder Affairs. Department yeah. of Elder Affairs is the genesis of uh, GoFresh. Elder Affairs started it up and collaborated with Public Health Institute um, and then YMCA got involved put in the, got with PBTA to get the retired school bus van which we've run for I'd say 10 out of the last 12 years. But yeah, it's been around the area for quite a long time. Then on City of Springfield's radar for about as long as I can remember. Monica and Riley yeah. from GoFresh Mobile Market who are here at Linden Towers in Springfield assisting people who are purchasing all of these great fresh fruits and vegetables. It's January. Where is all this food coming from? A lot of the, let's say the bok choy and the lettuce and the parsley, we grow right here in Indian Orchard at our Greenhouse Wellspring Cooperative. The local produce will be coming from as many farms as we can get it from that are open right now. So Bardwell Farm, Plainville Farm, Clarkdale Fruit Farm. Nice. Even. We do splurge a little bit and get some stuff that's not so local, but is seasonal. Nice to have oranges at this time of year. Yeah, well, it's not necessarily summer here, but it is somewhere, so I'll find a way to get some mangoes and papayas and avocados because it's seasonal. We try to keep it as fresh as we possibly can. One thing that may be hard for people to understand is here you have this beautiful local produce, and when people are on food stamps, they get this state benefit that really expands their budget, which is the Healthy Incentive Program. And yet it takes so much logistical work on both your parts to make this work. Can you share why is it a labor of love and doesn't just go easily? It is literally very physically demanding. You really don't need to inquire any kind of extra workout. We're constantly doing squats. These are heavy crates. Like, Squash squats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. seriously. Like, yeah, this is our workout. Pounds a pop. We have a new truck now, so we can't even fit in there technically. So we're, <laughs> we're scrouched in there. We're constantly playing like Jenga or like Tetris. <laughs> and it's, it's like, it's literally a disaster waiting to happen. But like, we have figured it out. And if like, we don't if mess don't up. Like, if you don't like organized chaos, this is not the job <laughs> no. but we we get jokes all the time they're like how long have you guys been together and we're like oh we're not a couple but we act we so argue like one we do <laughs> work marriages yes. I, don't know yeah, I don't know anything about that it's a work marriage for sure but it is it's a love of pet, love of life we love food we love talking about the ideas you are what you eat if you eat processed food then you start to see the health effects talking with other customers about some of their homeopathic remedies that they have from wherever they're from you know we have people that will buy 40 50 heads of garlic and that's all they're buying why vampires oh. <laughs> garlic soup because like it's the season for it it's always because it's one of like Tinctures. the essentials to help you like with health benefits in your immune system yeah. so we always have garlic we all have oranges we have lemons and limes we have ginger um we always have our local honey from billy c's that's like you know your little remedy right there for your tea and all your health benefits Those are like our top sellers right there. You mentioned Riley and Monica from GoFresh Mobile Market that this grew out of UMass. It 
grew out of Public Health Institute. It grew out of Elder Affairs. Is it now a business? Is it a nonprofit? So we had the option of doing on a business license. Rather than do that, we liked the idea of it being a nonprofit. I actually partnered up with our customer, which was Wellspring Cooperative, who we were buying the lettuce from, and said, hey, you know, you've got a cooler, you've got a greenhouse. It's a good match. You're a cooperative. We could do this together because people want to give monies to nonprofits and cooperatives. To private individuals, maybe not so much. Right. <laughs> so let's not do a business license. Yeah. Let's keep this under the cooperative as an entity. So we run it as a nonprofit under the Wellspring Cooperative umbrella now. And it enables us the freedom to be able to work with more of the public infrastructure and city infrastructures and support the community on a greater scale than we were trying to do it on a personal business thing. It just doesn't make sense to do it that way. Yeah, I mean, I know that there have been other attempts from other farms to do this similar kind of thing and economically it has been difficult and doesn't not all always last. Profitable. And it's, yeah. it's a mission of goodwill, so it's not necessarily a business model that works. Mm. For us to be able to stay sustainable, we can get the food to pay for itself, and then grant funding covers our labor. So the other part of the logistics, I imagine, one is like managing to get the, all this amazing produce at all these different locations on three different days of the week. But the other part, I imagine, is how do you keep increasing the number of people who want to come and get the food? So that's a lot of our marketing, uh, word about mouth, us personally posting on our social media accounts. We're asking if any of our locations, they have the roll call system where they can either text or send out messages. So that way residents um, know every time we get a new customer, we always tell them, tell whoever you know who has EBT or just let them know that, hey, we're here. I do know that statewide, the Healthy Incentive Program is such a great program, but only about six to eight percent of all the households who are getting food stamps from the federal government even use their state benefit program. Kind of curious, what, what's the percent of customers who come in to uh, all your stops are using their HIP benefits, would you guess? It's probably about 90. 90% of our customers are HIP purchasers. That's a good thing about like word of mouth is that usually somebody who has EBT, SNAP benefits, they know somebody who has it. If they come across this great opportunity, then they're going to tell their friend, their family. Usually every week, we're probably seeing one or two customers who are bringing some with them. We like to call our customers participants because mm-hmm. they're participating in helping us keep it up, keep it going. Now, if we can collaborate and get the state to do something more with the DTA. Department say, of Transitional Assistance. Sorry, thank you. <laughs> to just notify and educate people, hey, there's this extra oh, benefit yeah. that you have oh, on your God. card that you're not you using. It's real, it's 10% or less that know about it. And we're really trying to do as much as we can to get the word out and say, hey, look, you can use your food stamps for the meat and the milk and the dairy and all that other good stuff. We can help you out with the fruits and vegetables. Both of you have culinary backgrounds and you've talked about bringing samples to the market. Has there been anything that's come that has really sparked people's taste buds where they really started asking for it? Brussels sprouts. <laughs> really? I'm not kidding. Brussels sprouts. Thank you, Harry. Bardwell Farm. We were doing loose case Brussels sprouts. And the idea being in a farmer's market is not everything's packaged, right? You reduce your packaging. But then we're grocery store trained that we want stuff in package because we don't want people to touch our food. So now we got <laughs> cute little one pound bags. And then we're like, boom, I've never sold so many Brussels sprouts in the first hour. That I've had 20 pounds sitting in a basket. 
I don't like Brussels sprouts. But they're in a little baggie now, one pound batch. Oh, that's cute. Boom, take it. Mini, <laughs> mini cabbages, I can deal with that. <laughs> it works. We, we do change it up. We do try to listen to what our customers want. Canepas are one I've been trying to get a hold of that not too many people know about. It's a Puerto Rican sweet lime that it's hard to find. We do the garlic, we do the gingers, we get a lot of the ingredients for the sofrito. It's a Puerto Rican green sauce, which is really good. You know, and we try to even grow the cilantro and stuff like that, but that our cow is kind of hard to find. So these are little crops that I've been working with other farmers in the area. Say, hey, do you think you might be interested in growing a crop that my customers would like to see? Callaloo being another one. Mm. You know, a lot of people are like, ah, what is that? Uh, no, it's just- It's hard to grow here. It's here. amaranth. Yeah. It's green amaranth. I made the mistake of growing red amaranth. And they were like, oh, no. But then I had a whole bunch of green stuff, and I just, I had some customers up on State Street, Mosque 13, uh, hashtag Sister Anna Muhammad. She really helped us get a lot of those crops for folks in that neighborhood and bring my attention to it. I was like, oh, well, hey, I got a whole bunch of it here. I just gave it away. No, I'm not giving it away anymore. <laughs> I have a very strong Vietnamese population at the X in Springfield, and we were doing a lot of garlic, and it turns out these people are buying garlic for tinctures. They're, they got a little bottle of vodka, and it's like 30 cloves of garlic, some ginger, and it all goes in there, and it stays. And then it's just a little tiny drink every day to maintain blood pressure. And a lot of people are using the food as medicine. There's a movement called Nutritarianism. It's back, you know, millennia years old because you use food as medicine. So they're actually just eating healthier and getting off of medication. They're reducing their heart medication, they're reducing blood pressure medication just by monitoring their health. We were working with um, Bay State Hospital, their nutrition department, and registered dietitians who are going to be coming with us and signing people up to do a food prescription. They'd come visit our stops, they get a coupon for that. We're just really trying to change the way people are thinking about farmers markets. You probably heard me squealing or speaking in Spanish and greeting one of our customers. Yeah. It's a regular customer that we usually see. She's been coming with us for years now, and, you know, we missed her a couple days. Today's the first day I've seen her since the new year, and so it, moments like that just make it really, like, rewarding, you know? And it feel, it's a really feel-good moment where you can see someone, and they're happy to see you. You're happy to see them, and, you know, now they're she, they're just here to shop. What's your name? Hey, quick with oh, my name is Maria. Where are you from? I'm from New York. Uh-huh. And you, but you live here in Springfield? Uh, oh, yes. I uh-huh. was raised and born in New York. Tell us about your relationship to Monica and Riley and the Go Fresh Mobile Market. They're my friend. He's very nice. She's very nice. I love them both. Mm-hmm. I miss them when there's a holiday yeah. and when they take off in vacation. <laughs> <laughs> what did you get today? Oh, well, I got green peppers, red pepper, garlic, grapefruit, apple, orange, pear, and... Baby spinach. You know anything exciting you're going to make with that? The garlic is to season in my meat. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tenderize it in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's just moments like that that just make it really great. Some of our customers, they come with, to us and they only have, you know, a dollar on their card. And we're able to swipe that card 40 times. <laughs> but they're able to walk away with $40 worth of groceries. And they only had a dollar on the card. You can't do that at Stop and Shop or Big Y. And that's another feel-good moment. 
You can find out where Riley and Monica will be, where and when, by searching for Go Fresh Springfield Mo- Mo- Farmers Market on Facebook or checking out their website at gofreshmobilemarket.org. Up next, a production of a groundbreaking queer theater piece comes to East Hampton this weekend. We'll talk with Jason Hayes and Michael Bundick, uh, Budick of the East Hampton Theater Company. We're going to get your name right. Don't worry. During the break <laughs> of East Hampton Theater Company's production of Harvey Firestein's Torch Song. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. The life of Arnold Beckoff, a torch song singing Jewish drag queen living in New York City over the span of the late 1970s and 1980s is the subject of Harvey Firestein's Torch Song trilogy, which opens in East Hampton at the Blue Room of the Old Town Hall this Friday, January 26th, and will have showing through February 4th. Slight clarification, they're doing Torch Song. There are two versions. We'll get into that. Yes. Torch Song <laughs> follows Arnold's odyssey to find happiness in New York, and all he wants is a husband, a child, and a pair of bunny slippers that fit. It's interactions with its overbearing mother that remind him that he needs one thing more, respect. Joining us from East Hampton Theatre Company's production of Torch Song is president of East Hampton Theatre Company and the producer of the show, Michael Budnick. We're also joined by Jason Hayes, who is the wig, hair, costume, and makeup designer for the performance. According to the Daily Hampshire Gazette, Jason P. Hayes has actually worked with Harvey Firestein on some of his other plays and is volunteering his time for this show. Hayes has also worked with a wide range of acting clients, Kate Blanchett, Angelica Houston, Megan Fox, Antonio Banderas, and his TV credits include 30 Rock, Gossip Girl, SNL and more. Welcome to the both of you. Thank you. So much. <laughs> um, I haven't had a chance to see the the stage version of this show, but I have seen the movie. And I know that there is a difference between the original trilogy and the version that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about the differences there, just in case someone's like me and has happened to like either see the movie or the original production? Jason Hayes. Yes, thank you so much. So the original production was initially three one-act plays that were actually done separately. Um, but when you kind of place those three things together, it was an extensive amount of time. So uh, I believe it was 2017, Harvey had done the re- started to do the rewrites for Torch Song, which kind of melds those three pieces into about a little over two, about two and a half hours of theater, uh, and tells this story collectively. Um, so it's, it's a little more adapted. It does kind of, it follows the same thread, um, but it's a little more cohesive, and we kind of weave the characters a little tighter to be able to get this message across in a single sitting. Very cool. Anybody who's been following national politics know that this is, uh, let's call it, interesting time for drag and LGBTQ rights and uh, anti-LGBTQ legislation. Michael Budnick, who's the president of this East Hampton Theater Company and producer of Torch Song, tell us why now and why East Hampton for this production. Well, I think uh, you just answered that. Why now? And um, so uh, initially, uh, if you if you look back at the time period of this production. Um, this was not a time period that was particularly friendly uh, to the LGBTQ community and to drag in general, and that's really what this is about. Um, um, Harvey Firestein talking about getting respect in, in a world that was quite hostile. And obviously, um, we've come a long way as, as a society since then, but what's happening now? 
Um, we had this humongous backlash. Now, I'm old enough to remember the big Anita Bryant backlash, so I'm, I'm hopeful that a backlash like this will, will kind of turn around into even more progress later. But hmm. right now, it's a really difficult time um, uh, in, in many parts of the country. We're a little bit insulated from that in the valley, but not so much. You just drive outside of the valley just a little bit. Um, you live in northern Connecticut in the country. Uh, what's it like there? Uh, it, it's been an interesting experience. Uh, we moved, uh, you know, I was based out of Manhattan. Uh, we lived, my husband and I lived in New Jersey. We moved to Connecticut uh, about a little over three years ago. And so last year, uh, with this backlash kind of hitting close to home, we helped to organize the first gay pride in Granby, Connecticut, um, which was something that was I felt was really necessary, especially with what we were starting to see even locally around us. Um, and now if you're kind of following the news around us, you know, you have... Uh, Enfield has banned the gay pride flag on any public buildings, and Suffield is now looking to follow suit. And anyone who looks is looking to have an event on the town green must have a $1 million liability policy. So, uh, you know, like I've always said, free speech is free until you have they, they're forced to pay for it. Hmm. And so it's quite interesting to see this piece being told now. I think that's why it was so important for me to be part of this production. Um, you know, normally I work film, television, and theater, and... With the SAG and writers, uh, the strike happening, uh, the films that I was supposed to be working on were all postponed indefinitely. And I saw an ad come across my Facebook feed that East Hampton was holding auditions for this show. And so I reached out to them on Facebook and just said I'd love to volunteer my time. I think that um, it's quite amazing that such a small theater in a rural part of Massachusetts is choosing to tell this story in this current political climate. And any way that I can be part of that, I would be honored. And it, it is such a small theater that it's virtually sold out. But yes. we will talk about that more later. <laughs> it is virtually sold. But there's not just about seeing yourself, but this particular play and the fact that it is about like early slash pre-AIDS era gay life is also incredibly important. Like how how normalized the entire play is, I think, is part of its charm and wonder. Can we talk about like like making those things so Things that people think are out of the ordinary, extremely ordinary in this show. I think what's incredible about this piece is we do have very few queer uh, pieces of theater that are pre-AIDS crisis. So I think what ends up happening is um, we lose the humanity and the day-to-day life aspect of being uh, part of the queer community because everything is filtered through the AIDS lens, which those stories have to be told. But um, we have so few where we we separate those two struggles. And I feel what's incredible about Torch is that, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, he's looking for love. He's looking for respect. He's looking to, you know, he wants a child. I think what Arnold's really trying to do is find himself um, through his, his own version of himself, not a version that society wants from him, not a version that is safe and palatable for society. He's truly looking to find himself on a level that he's okay with. And I think that is the queer struggle. Mm-hmm. Jason Hayes, you've worked with Harvey Firestein and you have a relationship to this production. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yes, I'm uh, very privileged to call Harvey a friend. Um, he's been I've known Harvey for a little over 23 years, 24 years at this point. Um, and once again, it was I was volunteering. That's how we ended up meeting. There used to be a kind of like a queer news magazine program on PBS called In the Life. Oh, yeah. And I volunteered for years to do hair and makeup for all of their hosts. And that's how Harvey and I actually met, was doing that program. And then he had them bring me on uh, to work with him on Hairspray on Broadway. Wow. 
Yeah. And so the last thing I think I designed for Harvey was Casa Valentina, which was nominated for the Tony as well. Yeah, so I've been very blessed to be able to tell some pretty incredible, remarkable stories uh, with Harvey as, as uh, a kind of a narrator. Tell us a little bit about East Hampton Theater Company, Michael Budnick, who's the president and the producer of this uh, Torch Song happening, which kicks off this weekend in East Hampton. Sure. Well, East Hampton Theater Company started in 2022. It started as an idea with a group of people that were used to doing community and regional theater in the area. Um, but um, we're based in Northampton, East Hampton, where there wasn't really a vibrant community theater. And we all got tired of of driving 30, 40, 45, 50 minutes. And, and we also were, um, we really knew what was happening in East Hampton and how the vibrant arts and culture community had been growing and growing. And there wasn't a resident theater company. So the idea came together, people came together. Facebook was a great communications tool to do that and other social media. And so we started, we had our first production um, in uh, early 2023. It was uh, God of Carnage. Uh, which is a wonderful satire of upper middle class hypocrisy. Um, so we don't just want to entertain. We want to do things that are important and informative. Uh, we also want to do things that are funny. Um, we want to do dramas. But uh, we, we really want to bring community th- theater to the community and by the community. And when we went out and looked for what would we do for the next couple of productions, um, we actually solicited um, the, the theater community to for ideas. And this idea came to us as a really, I think it's a great story because I was in a, a show, Hello Dolly, in South Hadley at Black Cat Productions a long time ago. And there was a kid in that production who was about 16 or 17 years old. Well, we were contacted by this kid when we solicited for, for shows to do. He's already, he's graduated from college, he majored in theater, and he says, I want to do Torch Song, and I want to direct it. I think you should do Torch Song in that small space. I can do it. I can do theater in any space. And we said, wow, this is great because I knew the trilogy. Mm. The trilogy was really important, a a piece of theater way back in the day. And I said, wow, they've made a two-act version of this. And I was so excited that someone in their 20s knew this piece of theater as classic queer (laughs) theater and, and was able to relate to it. Um, and so we decided to, he couldn't direct though, because he, um, I think he's doing either a master's program or got a job out of state, but, um, but fortunately. <laughs> the inspiration lives on. Right. But Jason Rose Langston, who's our, on our board, uh, took over and, and is directing now. Very cool. And as we mentioned, it is sadly mostly sold out, but watch their Facebook page and et cetera, because there may be some additional seating that opens We may up. be adding a few seats in the back there with cafe tables and things like that. And I do want to mention before we stop. Oh. Uh, I'm getting yeah, we're waving arms. We're going to stop in 15 seconds. Yes. It's Michael Budnick, we, uh, yes. Jason Hayes, part of Torch Song, which uh, kicks off this Friday in East Hampton at Town Hall, sold out. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank I'm Monty you. Belmonte. I'm Kali Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.